Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host Alex Thuma and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, AJ Bruno, co-founder and CEO of Quotespark. Welcome, AJ. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on today. Great to have you on just as a in the run-up to SaaS.Remote, Remote, which is happening on the 10th and 11th, and you'll be speaking there and speaking at the SaaS.Conference Conference for the first time. So great to, to have, you, uh, have you speak. It's a little bit easier to get our US uh, friends to, to speak at online conferences uh, rather than fly over to Dublin. Although we do, like, uh, there is a big... Uh, a big interest in flying over to Dublin because, uh, well, everybody seems to like Ireland, right? <laughs> but, My wife this morning, she was going through Facebook and she, she was like, hey, I see this ad. Do you know any of these speakers? And it was an ad for a SaaS talk. And I was like, well, I'm speaking at the conference. Why am I not on that list? But no, I'm, I'm super excited to be doing it for the first time. And I hope uh, in the future I, I get to be a part of the in-person event. And I'll take Dublin. That's, that sounds good to me. Uh, I'm looking for, I mean, it's a shame... Obviously, we, you know, we made the decision not to do in-person events this year. Again, you know, just around uh, the obvious kind of reasons, you know, of, of COVID. We don't know if there'll be a second wave uh, or not. Um, uh, but it, it's a little bit too risky for our, yes. you know, for our team, for our customers, uh, you know, and for us to kind of run, run, run an event. So Dublin will hopefully happen in October 2021. But uh, I'll be longing for that pint of Guinness in Ireland. Uh, before then, um, but it will be good. So hopefully we get to have a pint of Guinness then uh, uh, together, if you drink, that is. I won't make you drink if you don't drink. Um, but um, uh, tell us uh, uh, a little bit about yourself, um, you know, to, to our audience. Who's uh, AJ Bruno? I was just thinking back to the times, and this was in my, we'll say, previous career when I stand on desks and do shots of fireball. Uh, so your, your question about do I drink? You know, the sales team and sales leader I've, I've, I have in the past, certainly, but I would absolutely enjoy a pint of Guinness. Um, to Alex, to answer your question, uh, yeah, AJ Bruno, co-founder, CEO of Quotapath. This is my second startup. My first was a company called Trendkite and based in Austin, Texas. I uh, founded that in 2012, and that was on the tail end of a five-year sales career stint with a company called Meltwater, which was in this media monitoring space, big sales team. Yep. I think we had about uh, 800 people on the sales team out of a thousand person company. So very B2B, very cold call to close type of sell, or 2007 to 2012. I founded that based on the idea in this space called public relations, this, uh, this idea of attribution. So if you're a company, corporation, whatever, and you're looking for uh, news coverage on yourself, what is the actual value on that news? Who's reading it? What are they saying about it? Uh, and actually giving real meaningful numbers, not just impression and fluffy social metrics, but the actual ROI. So I found that in 2012, uh, we grew that company to 25 million in ARR in four years. And I ran the sales team all the way through. So zero to 20 million, I led a team that grew to about 150 folks. Uh, between the lead generation, new business, and account management. Uh, and saw that all the way through. Had a phenomenally successful time there, mostly because of the people that we hired and just how driven they were all the way through. Um, I left that company in 2018, right before acquisition, 
to a big public company called Cision. It got sold to for 225 million, so a really great outcome. Uh, and I immediately started a second company, and that company is Quotapath, which is on the back end of my uh, sales career and understanding what are some of the sales challenges that we had. And the Trenkai acquisition, it was uh, 225 million by Cision. Is, uh, is that how you pronounce it? Cision. Cision. Although it's Swedish, so maybe you're probably more, you're probably closer to the actual pronunciation, but. <laughs> and yeah, so that, that was 10x revenues at the time. So, and um, well, I mean, growing to 25 million ARR four years, I mean, congrats, that's, uh, that, that's really good growth. What percentage uh, of, of the company did you own at, uh, at Exit? Oh, I owned 100%. All founders own 100% <laughs> yeah. of the company, right? No, we had done five rounds of funding up through a Series D. I think one of the things when, you're, when you start a company is you, you don't really understand cap tables. You don't understand how that, that works. It was a great uh, learning lesson. I owned, um, I owned a, a humble piece of it, but it was still a humble piece of a $225 million exit. Uh, so financially, it, it was, I did another podcast about um, wealth and just like how that, that worked, but it brought financial freedom and gave me the ability to start a company. And uh, my wife's also started a company as well uh, since then. So allowing us to pursue other, other ventures uh, for ourselves and you know, feel, feeling good about our financial security for years to come. You started another SaaS company you know, pretty much uh, like straight away. Why not take some time off or become an investor and some other paths or become a coach, uh, whatever. Why, why, why do it again? I think I'm doing all those things too. I've, I mean, I have done uh, about 12 startup investments and I'm advising three companies too. And so you cover all the white space you can. I always thought that I was going to take time off. I was, I was driven. I mean, going sales for about 10 years straight and inside sales, a monthly sales cycle with monthly quotas and monthly targets, it just, it can wear on you. Mm -hmm. You eventually start to like smooth out and get way more consistent and then consistency leads to your team. So it feels uh, slightly better with more predictable revenue. But that said, um, I, I was really inspired by the idea and passionate about the idea of what we're doing with Quotapath. And I think that really led to like, okay, I'll take a couple months off. And I did a couple consulting gigs at the same time. But the more we went down the path of uh, Quotapath, the more we, we followed this idea, the more clear it became that there was a real, not just problem, but there was a, there was a real solution to meet the market. And so I became more and more excited about it. And then once I like get captivated on something, I'm just going to drive through it. How much, how much time did you take off uh, in, in between Trenkai and Quotapath? I didn't take off a single day. I did, we, my wife and I went on a cruise for a week with some friends. And then I went to South by Southwest and spoke at it, but also like enjoyed it for the first time in the seven years that I lived in Austin. I guess five years I lived in Austin, seven years attending it. Uh, but I didn't take a single day off from starting um, from Trenkai to Quotapath. And I saw on, uh, I think it was on your LinkedIn, you said, I get tattoos if my team kills it. <laughs> so how many tattoos have you got? Have you got an exceptional team and you're covered in tattoos or have you got just one or two? Yeah, I actually just have one. So it started in early 2013. We were driving for our first $100,000 month, new business month. And we had our whiteboard that had our pipeline, our committed ops, and, and some of the things that you like culturally align with in, your, in the sales team. For example, uh, if you had a committed op on the whiteboard and it fell out, you couldn't erase it. I wouldn't allow you to erase it. You had to cross it off. It just kind of like that, that idea that you put that up there, you owned it, 
and you're going to be accountable for it. Well, it started like that board became bigger and bigger. And then we started to think about opposite. Like we were opportunities, I should say. So for those not familiar, those are deals that you're working on um, that could potentially come in. And one of my sales managers who eventually became a director said, look, if we close all these deals, we're going to hit a hundred thousand. What are we going to do for a hundred thousand? Like AJ, you have to get a tattoo. And I, you can see me on the screen. I do not look like a tattoo person whatsoever. Uh, Alex, you fit the mold very well, not me. <laughs> but I, uh, I was like, okay, I can do that. Um, and we finished at $97,000. And then, and we were cruising and the next month, it became 200,000 and the uh, tattoo list grew and grew. And we hit 200 and like $97,000. So 295, I think that month, or no, 195, sorry. So we didn't quite get it. And the, the tattoo list got forgotten. About six months later, we were headed towards our first million dollar month. And uh, the tattoo list came back. And I wasn't so worried. I was like, million dollars. I mean, we did 600,000 last month. A million is going to be a stretch for this already for us just to cruise up to a million. My wife was kind of upset about it. She was like, AJ, I always looked at you as a leader in everything you do. But here you're being a little bit of a follower. You're, you're, you're buying into peer pressure. And I was like, you know what? No. If we hit this, I am going to look back at it and say that was a moment where my team did something so great that I absolutely want to memorialize this. Uh, and we did. We hit a million dollars. And so I'm a pilot and I have a, a tattoo on my uh, ribs of a plane that's like moving forward on along a flight path. So it reminds me to always keep moving forward. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, I don't, I don't, most people know, I don't know if it's on this side, but I've got a tattoo of uh, the SASDOC logo. That's yeah, awesome. Not, we can't rebrand uh, now. Uh, <laughs> or if we do, I, I just get more, I guess. But uh, but uh, moving from tattoos to uh, to the topic of helping sales team hit quotas, and, and this is something I, I, I want to have a discussion with you and kind of mainly kind of pick your your brains on. It's been a long time since I was a, a salesperson, um, uh, so so yeah, uh, would be good to, um, you know you know to talk to, to you about this. So uh, first question I, I, I want to ask is. Do you believe in stretch goals or achievable targets? Um, uh, and, and what's your kind of opinion here? Because it diff is differing opinions uh, to a lot of people that we speak to. Yeah, I mean, for, for me in life in general, I believe in stretch goals and targets. So the answer is yes, this isn't just a sales thing. I think writing something down is, is very, very important. I do this in my personal life. I do this in my business life, year to year, month to month, week to week, day to day even. Um, I even, you know, I keep a daily log of all of my goals and how I'm going to achieve them. Really big believer in those. Uh, for sales, however, I think the way I think about it is the, especially looking back at Trendkite, because I had this interesting view as a founder and the on the board, thinking about the financial goals and the financial targets of the company. But then being able to bring that down to the, the quotas and the targets of the quota capacity of the, the sales team. And so I could bridge the gap between the art of the sell with the sales team and like what the um, different plays and the different strategies going into calls for account planning were all the way up to the science of the sales of what does the model look like, demo to close ratio, pipeline, how do the conversions and the funnel work all the way through, consistent messaging, all of that stuff. So. I had this really interesting view. And at Trendkite, one of the biggest challenges we ran into early is I wasn't hiring fast enough. I think lots of companies and teams run into this from a recruiting standpoint, 
of like, you want to hire really, really good people. But the problem was the financial plan outpaced what our headcount growth was. Meaning if our quota was $100,000, our financial, and there was 10 people, our financial plan might say, oh, your quotas actually should be $200,000, 20 people. And we got backwards flipped on it where for almost a year we were behind in our financial targets as quota capacity. So our team had to overperform, overperform by a lot, by about 150%. We, we always did it, almost always did it. 34 out of 36 monthly quotas we hit during that time. And I realized that, yeah, stretching a team maybe isn't always sustainable, but having those stretch goals and really honing in on them will allow you to meet expectations as you move down. So if we had 150%, then our financial target might've been 125% and we're still gonna hit financial target, which we always did as well. And that carried through, but you have to have the right ingredients and the right type of person to be able to think like that. And I think even now it's really hard, especially with everyone working remotely, to be able to create the cadence and create the motivation and consistency with your reps to be able to do that. So it's a challenge to create stretch goals in today's environment. I'll definitely say that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw a recent tweet, and I don't have the full context, but from Todd McKinnon, CEO of Okta. Um, I think they were doing their, their quarterly uh, executive um, you know, sort of like meetup. Uh, and uh, he was basically showing you know, some grids with a lot of reds and you know, maybe kind of one or two greens. And he was saying, look, his belief, and he's always been a believer in setting like big stretch goals. Uh, and then if you, if you fail, like, you know, that's fine. Uh, but at least you've been trying to kind of like hit those goals rather than hit, you know, set things that are kind of, you know, easily achievable. Uh, but I guess kind of like, you, you know, great if you do that. I guess you, you've got to get the right people on board that, that, can, that, that can deal with that, right? And live with that. Because a lot of people, if you're consistently failing, are going to get demotivated, especially in sales, I, I would think, right? Well, so in our app, and to explain what our app does a little bit, uh, it helps salespeople track their commissions in a very straightforward manner. It's a real easy way to be able to understand um, what you're going to actually earn in performance. And a lot of our app is actually centered around goal tracking and forecasting. We have a part of the application called MyPath, which is a little bit like a mint.com for salespeople, basically a portfolio where they can keep track of their career earnings, how they're doing, but they can also do goal tracking, like how many deals for a down payment on a house or an engagement ring or president's club. Uh, and what we notice in our application, the folks that use that usually sit 117% on average of target. So they, and they actually set goals that way. And people that use our application are high performers. Because if you think about someone, uh, take our app away and just in a sales role, when they close the deal, what's the, one of the first things they're going to do? They're going to go see how much they made off of that deal. Well, the really good ones are proactive about it. And you might have accelerators and decelerators, and they know how to gamify their comp plans a little bit. But they also have a really strong understanding of how they're doing quarter to quarter. And so what we've done is added another layer to that that helps those high performers do exactly that. So I would say if you're thinking about it from a sales perspective, like how do I continue to get better, writing down those stretch goals and being okay with seeing red sometimes is a really important skill set to have. You just have to be uncomfortable 
with that that failure points, those failure points. So in terms of like your sales team, so I mean, you mentioned the the Meltwater example, like 800 salespeople in a, a company of a thousand, right? Um, uh, what, 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 is the, what does the quota path kind of team look like? You know, what percentage uh, is sales? And then what is the structure of that sales team? I I'd actually, so we have 17 people on the team right now. So we're, we're two years in. What I would ask you this, what percentage of you, our team do you think is sales? Uh, so you've got 17. Given that you worked at Meltwater, I'm just going to have a guess and say 80%. So we literally just hired our first salesperson. Okay. We're, we're actually, and this is lessons learned, we're um, very big on product and engineering. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a movement, I think OpenView, I know OpenView has, has really pushed this movement of product-led growth, of PLG. Yes. You could think of the Slack, you could think of Dropbox. Uh, there's Notion and, and um, Airtable companies that are saying, hey, here's our product, try it out. Uh, we've also gone that route for sales teams and sales sales reps. So our first year was building the tool for the individual seller just to get it out there in the freemium. And there's competitors in our bucket. In fact, one of them just raised $13 million in a Series A from Sequoia. Uh, it was just announced two days ago. So this is, this is a known problem. But all of them are looking at it very top down. So they're building traditional sales teams. And I, uh, everyone has said, well, AJ, you, you have this sales background. Why don't you just go out and build a B2B? Because I don't think that's how a really sustainable, long-lasting company should be built. I think it should be centered around the user engagement and customer retention. And so we hired a customer success person, was our, our first actual growth hire. Uh, that was last year. Uh, we had an account manager salesperson that started last week as our first sales hire. And then we have one starting next week as well, both people that I've worked with. I uh, feel really strong that we're gonna create an awesome process and we're gonna build that team up, but feel that the, their goal and their role is to make sure that users understand and realize the value of our service, um, not to push and press a hard sell on, on individual users. With the product-led growth uh, approach, so you have a freemium model, are you aimed uh, more at the kind of the SMB sort of market uh, you know, at the moment, uh, do you have an enterprise plan? Is it, or, you know, yeah. 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 I mean, you, you've nailed it. There's, there's two, two tiers right now. There's the free and then plus, and then we'll have a pro and, and plus is $20 per user per month. Uh, that's aimed at a sales ops director, even CRO of the mid market. Um, and you can integrate to Salesforce. We'll have HubSpot integration shortly. Um, and it allows people to very quickly get up on onboarded. The biggest challenge in our, um, space is onboarding. And it takes a really long time. The incumbent legacy players in our space usually take months. I know this because we bought one of those services and it took us eight months to onboard. By then we had changed the comp plan two times. So it doesn't make any sense. So all of these companies look at it from a finance standpoint and have to have complicated formulas, all that stuff. We just removed all of it. So a rep could um, set up their own comp plan in a matter of minutes. And we have 80% success with reps setting up their own plan. And then a comp owner could come into the workspace, adopt those plans, officialize, like notarize them and send them as official plans out so that they're locked and loaded with a Salesforce integration. Uh, and it's really that easy. So it takes less than a day to onboard a full team. And that's how we think about it. And so I will build a sales team that will be more on the account management sales assist side of, of the house. I 100% will set uh, targets and we eat our own dog food. So we absolutely have, use quota path and background at, um, at the company. So as you just made that first sales hire and will likely, you know, uh, make, 
many more, uh, you know, as uh, uh, as time goes on. What are you going to do, you know, as, as CEO of the company to, you know, do your best to help uh, your sales team uh, hit their targets beyond, uh, I mean, well, you can include tech within that and obviously, you know, eating your own dog food, but what, what else do you need to do, you know, as a, as a leader of the company or even, you know, as a CRO or a VP of sales to, to help your sales team hit targets? Continue to be on the front lines. I mean, I need to be continue to be in those conversations and understand the methodology front to back uh, and, and have conviction around the repeatability of it. Uh, it's also helpful for me from a product side. I mean, we're, we're very product led to make sure that that feedback loop is getting into it so that it helps enhance and support the team and that we set fair, fair targets and fair quotas. Um, I still feel strongly that a lot of it, the market is, is massive for us and most companies still use spreadsheets for this today. So the market's still very much on education and educating customers on, on how to use our service. But ultimately, to best support the team, I just need to be uh, leading by example with them and helping close deals. At what point uh, do you start to build um, you know, sales and go-to-market playbook? I mean, we've already done that. Uh, so we did that at the beginning of the year. And I, we have... Uh, 20 different presentations on objection handling, um, obviously the sales methodology with the reach out, the persona, the value propositions, uh, all the way through. I mean, I'm, even though we're a product-led company, I'm still a born seller at heart. And so I, my, my own killer instinct made those things happen early and often. Motivation's a big part, you know, for, for salespeople. I mean, uh, uh, not just salespeople, right? But uh, certainly when you've got a highly motivated salesperson, um, you, you know, you, they're often highly motivated because they're, they're doing quite well, right? Uh, but they're always kind of bumps in the road. And, you, you know, again, as salespeople, you get a lot of no's uh, as well. And, you, you know, uh, we can you know, certainly say from, from, from our experience, you know, as we pivoted online uh, for, uh, for SaaS.Remote, remote. Um, you know, this was during March and April when really like not a lot of people were, were buying because there was a lot of uncertainty because of the global pandemic, uh, you know, and, and we probably had more no's, but maybe everybody had more no's than ever, you know, kind of during that time, right? And yeah. the sales team get a little bit sort of deflated. What do you do in these situations where, you, you know, perhaps the sales team are a little bit deflated, um, you know, how do you pick them up uh, like beyond uh, I guess, you, you know, them closing deals. It, it certainly, you know, if there's a situation where the market's not good, you know, as it was, you know, uh, in, in March and April. You have empathy. I, I, I mean, I started my career in 2008. I, I, I'm not even trying to compare this recession or, uh, or whatever, <laughs> the pandemic and all things to 2008. But I, at the same time, I know what it's like to have someone pick up the phone and say, hey, have you been watching the news? Like we just had like five, five closings, our budgets cut, all of that stuff. And, and salespeople are used to no's. Like we live in our, outside our comfort zone to, to get those no's. Like a, a quick no is actually sometimes a good thing for us. And in a lot of cases, a good thing for us. But at the same time, you just have to be empathetic with the team that this is pretty tough and you kind of have to have fun and laugh with it. So like in 2008, for example, one of my coworkers <laughs> was making a call and I overheard her talking to someone that was at the front desk. And it was just an odd conversation. The person's like, wait, you're the only one at the desk right now? Wait, is this a real company? And she hung up and I was like, who did you just call? And she looked at it and she said, uh, Lehman Brothers, I think. <laughs> and Lehman Brothers had, uh, in the States, was just had 
massively imploded and was all over the news, but she was completely unaware. And, and so you have to laugh at those type of situations that happen. It's, it's tough to do because we're not in person and I am a very extroverted person. I mean, we, we all have this fatigue of, of having these conference calls. Uh, so it makes it that much tougher. So as a leader, you just really have to be present for those one-on-one -on -one conversations that you're still having with your you, middle, the middle manager gets a lot of flack in the sales organization for just kind of like hanging out, but the organizations that will thrive, use a SaaS stock term, uh, will thrive are where they can lift up, the leaders can lift up the middle managers and empower them to make their team successful during these times, equip them with the tools, whatever they need to be engaged. And also, by the way, cut the ones that aren't. Uh, because you need to make quick decisions on that and just kind of like consolidate uh, there. I'm not advocating layoffs or anything like that, but I think there's plenty of middle managers that don't do a, a, a great job. Um, so it's really important to recognize the ones that do and make quick decisions on the ones that don't. Leads nicely actually into into my next question. So like, uh, when do you you know fire or you know cut those that are missing targets? And you know what is an acceptable like you know miss in your point of view you know if, if somebody's hitting 60 percent sort of regularly you know you know do they stay on the team if they're 50 percent you know well, what, what is that point where you say look you know we've got to get rid of you you're not a top performer that's it was always a funny conversation and like oh man this this guy he's hits 85 percent every single month is his profit margins for the business are fantastic he's not making any money but he's making the business like he's actually a profitable person. I, I've gone through this exercise many times, even myself as a seller. I zeroed three months in a row when I first started in sales. So again, it goes back to empathy and understanding the mindset of the person you're talking to. Um, performance plans are, are certainly a thing and they should be used accordingly. But there, I, I can't think of a time where a top seller, an eventual top seller wasn't put on a performance plan. And that's the, the kick sometimes that people need. I mean, every top athlete has this where they just confidence gets shaken, everything gets down, their, their swings out of whack. Uh, so as a coach, you just have to recognize when they are a top performer that we can get them back. It's just working with them every day. And sure, you can put a performance plan in the background. Um, and that's the accountability measure. If they start hitting those things, then they'll continue and continue and then confidence builds and they'll be back on the saddle. Of course, there's also lots of people that are just not interested in doing sales um, and just are over it. Maybe they're over the company, the product culture is bad, subculture, they've gotten in the wrong crowd, uh, can't work from home well, whatever the case may be, you just set up a plan. And as long as that plan follows, then it's it was just as much my fault for making a, a poor choice in hiring and not doing a good job on onboarding it as it is here for you not performing. So 50-50 on the split. We obviously spoke about earlier on that celebrating the huge milestone of a million MRR, you got a tattoo. I want to know, like, for those perhaps that don't want to get, you know, tattoos, but want to celebrate wins, and especially celebrating wins, like, remotely. Uh, like, right now, we, we can't go down the pub or crack open a bottle of champagne, you know, for a big win. Um, certainly, if you don't have it, you know, stocked in your, in your fridge. So how do you celebrate wins, I guess, kind of like right now with your team? What are your kind of thoughts uh, you, you know, on that? And in general, what do you do at, at Quota Park, uh, apart from the, the, the tattoo? I mean, we're kind of lucky in that we've, we had two things going for us. One, our, our company is split between Philadelphia and Austin. Uh, my wife and I moved back to Philadelphia 
uh, for family reasons in 2017. So we've already had a little bit of remote culture, cultural there. And so we had already set up rituals. Uh, so we do wins of the week at the end of the week. At, uh, and then we also do uh, shout outs where employees can um, single out other employees for something that they helped out with. And it's a lot of cross-departmental, cross-functional opportunities. So I think you just need to set those up uh, to begin with and make sure that those exist in an organization, even on a team, a sales manager can set something up like that and make them consistent. As far as like the, the normal celebrations, whether it was going out to a pub or uh, grabbing a team lunch or taking a day off with the team, and, and those have changed a little bit. But I ultimately think that it's a short-term thing. It's, it feels very temporary in that um, I've encouraged by people making plans for July and for August to have smaller group gatherings and, and doing things like that. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with uh, pushing, at least making the plan for it to have an in-person celebration with a smaller group uh, and, and maybe even making that the target itself. It's like, look, if we're all, all in the right phase or, or in the clear um, and we do these three things, then let's, let's make it a bigger. So making that, that celebration a little bit of a longer term, you still have to have the weekly wins. Uh, for my team specifically, I've done a few things um, that are, I would say are just a little bit, uh, just making sure taking care and supporting the team. One is just having that, understanding that mental health day. Of course, lots of people have canceled vacations and trips uh, and, and knowing that it's okay as a group a month ago, I think a lot of CEOs are doing this now. It's just saying, hey, we're all going to take the day off today. Um, that That's great. Uh, I also am personally allowing each person a budget of $100 to buy something for their home office, a desperation, and we're having a show and tell day next week for it. But you, the stipulation is you have to do it from a small business, a local small business, and so no Amazon included in that. But it's just, just some fun things that you wanna make sure that your team stays engaged and, and stays with you. You'll be speaking at SAS.remotes, Remotes uh, either on the 10th or the 11th. Uh, do you know the... Um... The 11th. I believe I'm saying. Uh, what, what will you be speaking about? So I'm speaking with Ariel and she, uh, interestingly, she owns a, a, a PR agency. We're talking about a couple different things. Um, obviously, remoteness is, is, is a topic, but it's one of the things that I'm working through is recruiting in, uh, in during this time. And how do you onboard employees during this time? There's no blue, there, there's remote culture for sure but for an inside sales team how do you onboard an inside sales team uh during this time and and so we're having a fireside chat that will dive into that and and um hopefully some really good stuff will come out of it and growing and it, I, I again love the idea of thriving like how do you take advantage of this and i used to say about a month and a half ago oh quota path's net neutral I actually no longer believe that. I actually believe that this is going to be an awesome summer for the company. Um, and I'm really excited about that as we grow uh, and head into the fall and look to um, potentially raise a Series A at that time. Awesome. Awesome. Well, looking forward to that. And uh, uh, final question we always ask our guests, how they stay healthy and sane. Um, uh, what is your way? <laughs> well, it's not homeschooling three girls. I promise you that, which is what I'm doing. <laughs> My wife's in the other room with our, our oldest right now. Um, 
I run every day and I think exercise obviously is a really important part. The one thing that has, has been a little bit of a blessing is I used to run at 5.30 a.m. And I, well, actually earlier than that, I'd always get into the office at seven. And so seven to nine was like my golden two hours where I could just like focus and get a ton of awesome work done. And I've lost that unfortunately a little bit, uh, but it's allowed me to run at different times in the afternoon and my head's a little bit clearer. Uh, that helps quite a bit. Um, I know that this isn't everyone. I mentioned I'm a pilot and uh, I own an airplane. And one of the, the most, this was prior to coronavirus, but the most calming thing I can do is fly an airplane. Uh, and it's just an amazing feeling to not have the outside world have like this constant digitized drone in you. Um, and so I, I done that every other weekend, uh, just quick flights and, um, you know, the skies are a little bit more clear these days. So it's also a really interesting, almost eerie, uh, time to do it, but it's, it's been head clearing for sure for me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, AJ, it's been great having you, uh, on the podcast today. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your thoughts. Where, where can people find you? Uh, I, I saw you're not that active on Twitter. Uh, no, Twitter. LinkedIn, I am. I'm a little bit more active on LinkedIn. Uh, AJ Bruno 3 is my handle on LinkedIn. Um, you know, prior uh, to coronavirus, I've, I've done a lot of like just positive news, but uh, I will become a lot more active this summer as we launch our paid. Our paid goes live June 17th. Uh, so the, the world will very much know who we are. Um, post that, but yeah, LinkedIn. I answer, if you write Emma wrote me a message on LinkedIn at like 11 p.m. her time. I was like, is this a real message or is this automated? And she's like, nope. I've been working 17 hours straight. Here I am. So uh, I wrote her back immediately, and that's how we we got connected. So feel free to hit me up there. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, um, looking forward to uh, to your talk at, at SAS Remote and seeing you there virtually. Um, but thanks so much for being a guest on the SaaS Revolution today, uh, AJ Bruno, uh, CEO of Quotespot. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS Doc conferences around the world.